you have a copy of God's Word, I invite your attention to Joshua chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8, we continue to journey through Joshua. Now, as you recall, if you were here last Sunday or Wednesday, we dealt with chapter 6 and 7. We dealt with the fall of Jericho, and then we dealt with the defeat of the people of God at a little tiny town called Ai. And in fact, what happened was that there was one who kept some of the spoils of war from Jericho, a man named Achan. And because of that, Israel was defeated. 36 men lost their lives. This is a a very real story. There were 36 widows that night and 36 families without a dad. They came to a place of defeat because there was sin in the camp. They had done what God had said not to do. They had taken from the spoils of war, some silver and some gold, and he hid those things under his tent in a, a garment, and he hid that, and, and because of that, God revealed it to Joshua, what had happened, and so Joshua called Achan before him, he called all the people together to account, and Achan confessed his sin, and he was put to death. But they went up to Ai to fight, and they didn't really consult God, they just sent a small portion of the army, and they were slaughtered, they were run out of Ai. And now they're going to attack Ai again after a time of repenting, after a time of coming to a place of reckoning with God. And so I want you to pick up with me in Joshua chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. And we're going to read from there to verse 29. Joshua 8, beginning in verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. So Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. The men in ambush rose quickly from their place, and when he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and then quickly set it on fire. When the men of Ai turned back and looked, and behold, the smoke of the city ascended to the sky, and they had no place to flee this way or that, for the people who had been fleeing to the wilderness turned against the pursuers. When Joshua and all of Israel saw that the men in ambush had captured the city and that smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and slew the men of Ai. The others came out from the city to encounter them so that they were trapped in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that side. And they slew them until no one was left of those who survived or escaped. But they took alive the king of Ai and brought him to Joshua. Now when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the field in the wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them were fallen by the edge of the sword until they were destroyed, then all Israel returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. All who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not withdraw his hand, which, uh, with which he stretched out the javelin until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants. Israel took only the cattle and the spoil of that city as plunder for themselves, according to the word of the Lord, which he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation until this day. He hanged the king of Ai on a tree until the evening. And at sunset, Joshua gave command, and they took down his body from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the city gate and raised over it a heap of stones that stands to this day. The strategy was military. 
part of the Israelites would go out and they would, in essence, taunt the citizens of Ai, the inhabitants of Ai, to come out. This is accounted for just previous to what we've read. And the rest would lay in ambush. And as soon as they ran out of the city, those that were in ambush came and they razed the city. They burned it. They set it on fire. And now they're between this group of Israelites who have fled and they chased them and now they turn back and their city's on fire. So they turn and when they turn, this group turns and they go and they fight. I don't know about you. This is a hard passage of scripture. God tells his people to kill everyone. There's a universal, I think nearly universal, at least it's an American thing. For dads to embarrass their kids. I see dads chuckling all around. Dads tell dad jokes, don't they? My my dad had a repertoire of about four or five jokes, and they weren't even good jokes. Oftentimes, dad will wear dress socks with sandals or dress shoes with shorts. Or they'll pull up to the school and honk really, really loud and wave. And at that point, the kids are going, Mom, Dad, you can just go to the end of the corner. Or you can put me on the bus. They, they embarrass them. I, I, a preaching professor named Herschel York was telling that same kind of story and talking about it. He was dealing with Josh Wade. I heard him some years ago, and, and it just raised in my mind the thought of this passage. But he talked about his dad. He said his dad would say all kinds of things that were just disturbing. He said he would, he, he would uh, use this fake, fake French. He would say, Pontiac, Chevrolet, Coupe Wee. And he said people would look. His friends would just look at him, and he would say with embarrassed tinge that he just didn't want to necessarily bring his friends over. Uh, until he started going to spend time with other families. And he realized his dad was fairly normal. And he realized his dad was wonderful. I, I think back on my dad and his repertoire of bad jokes. And I think about some of the things he would do to embarrass us at times. But I think about what a hero he was to me. And what a soul winner he was. And how wonderful he was. And the reality is sometimes we approach the Bible with this same kind of cringing feeling. We approach a text like this slightly embarrassed by it. I mean, what is this but genocide? God has told them to do an ethnic cleansing, to wipe out all of the people. It doesn't seem to make sense to a sophisticated society. I mean, we worship that God. I don't want you to to overlook this because maybe, just maybe, in your heart of hearts, you've thought that. You've come to a place like this. And you've looked at it several years ago when there was a a strong debate raging about a mosque being built right down the street from Ground Zero. A man named Robert Wright wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times and he was talking about the, the difficult passages in the Quran. But he went on to say, not only does it have embarrassing parts, but the Bible, if we admit, does as well. I mean, here's God handing out a death sentence. In Deuteronomy, God's telling his people to wipe out entire cities of peoples that worship the wrong God. There's a moment in time where Jesus looks at a woman and her daughter and he calls them dogs. Of course, as he said this, he's writing from a secular perspective. He said, but you want to see anti-Semitism at its best. The Bible has some unflattering things to say about Jews. And devoted Bible readers are quick at times not to address certain texts. I mean, we claim it as infallible and inerrant. And we say it's all profitable, but we downplay parts of it. Would you agree? This is audience participation time. 
I'm talking to those of you that actually do read your Bible from time to time, but these aren't the places you where you go for devotional learning. I, I don't say, boy, I'm going to look at Joshua 8 today and find encouragement as Joshua and all of the men slew everyone in Ai. Kind of interesting. I, I want us to think about this in terms of a true picture of God. My girls have grown up in a vastly different world than... I did. Kids today grow up in a technological age where there's some pretty interesting things, one of which is the way that we listen to music. I mean, we've gone through uh, sort of different um, generations of it. We, we started out with various medium. For a long time, it was just radio, and then we go from radio to records, and then from records to eight tracks and cassettes and CDs, and then digital downloads, and now back to records. My kids are buying record players these days. Kind of interesting. Old things become new. But one of the things my kids listen to often is Pandora Radio and Spotify. Now, if you don't know what those are, very simply, it's just streaming music service. That means you can listen to it all the time on a smartphone or on a computer. And, and for years, as we listened to regular radio over the airwaves, you couldn't change the songs. You could change the station. If you didn't like one station, you could change it. And we had a constant war as, as kids. We would, at a stop sign, hop over the, the front seat as far as we could and reach and change the station. And my dad would change it back. He wouldn't look for a moment and we'd change it again. But with Pandora, you can change the station. You can skip songs. Those of you that know what I'm talking about know that there's two simple little buttons. There's a like button and then what's the other one? Dislike. If a song comes on, and, and here's how it works, I put into Pandora or Spotify, this is what I want to listen to, this kind of group. I, I don't care what you like to listen to, soft rock, hard rock, classical music, instrumental music, piano music, guitar music, whatever kind of music you want to listen to, oldies but goodies. You, you find some area of music that you like to listen to, and you tell them that. And then they start playing songs by that artist or by that genre. And if a song comes on that you don't like, you just say, dislike. And the song immediately stops and they start playing another one. And when another song starts, it may be an artist you've never heard, but it's in the same general genre. And if you say, yes, I like this one, you give it a thumbs up, then it creates a computer algorithm that's far beyond our pay grade. I mean, we don't know what all that does, but it tells these are the things that he likes, these are the things that he dislikes, and it plays more and more and more of what we like. Here's what I would say for us this morning. In an age of customization of lifestyle and belief, if you and I aren't careful, we approach the Bible this way. We approach the Bible with this algorithm, kind of like a recipe, where we can adjust and adapt. Fill that in on your listening guide. We say, I like this part, but I don't like that part. And a lot of people in our society are doing this very thing. I, I don't know about you, I like 1 Corinthians 13. Thumbs up. It's all about love. I don't necessarily like everything 1 Corinthians 11 has to say about women. I like Joshua when it comes to God giving victory and giving power and giving encouragement. Be strong and courageous. I like that. I'll put that on, on a post. I'll, I'll put that on some fancy picture and put it online and I'll encourage people with that. Be strong and courageous for the Lord your God is with you. I don't necessarily like the parts where God says kill everybody. 
I, I like the parts when Jesus is in the Beatitudes telling us how to be blessed. I don't necessarily like it when Jesus starts talking about plucking out your eye and cutting off your hand and dealing with sin. I, I like the parts when, when we see Jesus in the manger being born and the, the Christmas story and the angels. I don't necessarily like the part where Jesus calls this woman and her daughter a dog. And if we're not careful, we come to Joshua 8 and we look at this and we develop our own spiritual algorithm where we become the judge. I'll preach this part, I like this part, but I'll stay away from that. But this morning, for just a few moments, I pray that you and I would look behind this story and we would, gl- we would glean some, some new perspective together. We would glean some new perspective on our God and His vast holiness and His power and His sovereignty. Now, I want you to see this first and foremost. I want you to see three things that led to their defeat in the first place. Number one, overconfidence. Overconfidence. Here's what I want you to see. You see, they, they said, we don't even need to bother God. We're on a roll. We've taken Jericho, so we'll just go up and we'll whip AI. Just send a few men. And they sent a few thousand, and they came home with men in body bags. Interesting to me is they were on a spiritual journey. This was a spiritual activity. So I want you to mark this down, Hardy Street. It is possible for us to have spiritual and godly objectives but be overconfident in the flesh. We can get so brazen and so bold as to say we can do this without God. Oh, I was so thankful of our Pine Belt Baptist Association this past week. We were able to take pallets and pallets of relief supplies to Houston. We probably will be turning soon and doing that again in Florida. We'll watch and see. But we better not get to the place where we see ourselves in a place of of, of self-reliance and dependence. We needed God to do all that we did. God moved in that. And it was an incredible thing to see how God worked in places that we had no idea help would come. Help came. And and instead of a small Penske truck, we ended up with an 18-wheeler load. And so God moved in that. But they can, they, they easily can, we easily can become overconfident just as they did. They were confident, just go and take AI. All the while, they should have prayed and said, God, thank you for the miracle of Jericho. And God, we want to move forward together under your leadership. Number two, overindulgence. The Bible says very simply, Achan took. Now, I want you to get this with me. Everybody look this way. God brought them to Jericho, the very first city of conquest. And God told them, everything in this city is devoted to me. I think it's interesting that we see this pattern here. God didn't want them to get to the place where conquest was about stuff. God didn't want them to get to the place where they go, hey, we're going to take over this land and look at all of what we get. No, conquest was about God giving victory. And the first things belong to God. Isn't that an interesting concept? All throughout Scripture we see it. Our first fruits belong to God. The first tenth of all that we have. And this isn't a sermon on tithing, but it is a matter of stewardship. Part of the reason God told them not to take anything out of Jericho was because everything that is first belongs to God. And if we give it to Him, then we acknowledge Him. And when they took, now we see them facing defeat. 
I believe with all of my heart, many a church is impotent in its evangelism and it's impotent in its actual practical living out of the Christian faith. Families are struggling. Why? Because they're robbing God. Why? Because they're disobeying God. And in disobedience, it brings devastation. Achan, one man sinned, and they become overconfident and overindulgent. He took. It said he saw it, he coveted it, and then he took it. And he took it to himself. Interesting. He didn't wait at all for, for God's best and God's blessing. In fact, God said at Ai, you can take spoil, you can take plunder, but not at Jericho. That's first. Our first things belong to God. Don't rush past that. The first minutes of your day ought to belong to God. The first day of the week ought to belong to whom? To God. The first tenth of your income ought to belong to who? God. Our first fruits ought to go to God. Jericho was the first fruits of Canaan and God said don't touch it. Does that make sense? Thirdly, Overprotection. Overprotection. Interesting. Did, did Achan take this garment and put it on and flaunt it around? Did he melt down that gold and give it away to his wife as a piece of jewelry? No, he hid it under a tent. He couldn't enjoy it. Here's a principle. If you're a child of God, you can't enjoy your sin for long. If you continue in your sin and you're enjoying it, you're just walking along with no sense of conscience, maybe you're not a child of God. Maybe you're lost. Because a child of God will face an inevitable conflict between what they believe and what they do. And that conflict will always bring misery. It will. Over time, if I am a believer and I habitually, continually sin, then I'm going to find myself at a place of great misery. There's nothing more miserable than a child of God outside the will of God. A lost man can act lost and enjoy it for a season. Now, the reality here is that he had overprotected it. There was no delight, no joy. You've done something against the will of God and you cannot enjoy that sin. And it's critical for us to see that conflict setting in. Conviction sets in and Achan can't enjoy it and Israel can't win because of it before it's dealt with. So God judges Achan before he judges Ai. Now come back to our text. That brings us right back up to this place. I'll just have to be honest with you. This is not a pretty story. They, they beat, burn, stab, and hack the people to death and you can't put a shine on that. You can't spin it in some positive way. Different people look at it different ways. Liberals would say perhaps that the God of the New Testament is not the same as the God of the Old Testament. That there's a a different approach to things. That maybe we're a little more sophisticated now. Maybe the Israelites misunderstood. Christopher Hitchens, an acclaimed atheist, wrote a book called God is Not Great. And he actually chided Christians that are liberal that would say that. Because he said, have you read the book of Revelation? Jesus will pour out wrath in the last days like we can't even comprehend in the Old Testament. He will judge all sin and cast into a lake of fire all that that is not of his kingdom. This is an atheist saying if you really believe it, you can't separate the two. Kind of interesting. Some of you are are sitting back with that cringe. You've got that tinge of embarrassment and struggle. Maybe you brought a friend today and you said, great, our pastor is preaching on justifying genocide. But maybe there's more. Maybe, just maybe, there's more. Some say it's not inspired. I mean, how can a God of love do that? 
like Pandora Radio. Some of us are trying to make God fit into our understanding of the way he should and shouldn't act. God, I don't like that. Can we change the song? We try to make God a civilized, humanized, nice guy. We try to put God in a box, as it were. Now, now a few things worth noting before we really sum all of this up. Number one, I want you to see that God's been very, very patient up to this point. I put that in your notes, and I put Genesis 15, 16. Hundreds of years before, when God is telling Moses what's going to happen, that they're going to enter the land, he says it will be into the fourth generation. It's going to be later because the sin, the iniquity of the Amorites is, listen to this, listen, it is not yet full. Their sin is not yet full. It's like the cup of their sin is just continually filling up and filling up and filling up. And at some point it's going to spill out. And when it does, God is going to, in all wrath and fury, judge those Amorites. Hundreds of years before, God promised this. Now, listen, church. If you read the book of Deuteronomy and all the laws that Moses gave after this statement of promise that you will return to the land but it's not until their iniquity is full over and over again God says don't do certain things and, and there's some pretty shocking things there don't commit certain physical acts don't do certain things he, he said don't pass your children through fire you know why God said not to do those things because all of the Canaanites were doing those very things. They had a porn, pornographic pagan worship that was just wicked. And God was getting fed up with that wickedness. But he was patient with them for hundreds of years. In fact, when the spies in chapter 2 went in, what did Rahab say? We've heard. We know what your God can do. We saw what your God can do. We know what he did to the kings of Og. We know what he did to the God of Sihon. We know about the miracle of Jericho is what these would say in Ai. They've seen God work. They could have repented just like Rahab. Before we get too high and mighty and start judging God for what he does in Joshua 8, look at all that God had done in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. God was graciously allowing repentance in her life. She was gloriously saved. Her family was saved. Why? They placed their faith in the sovereign God of the universe. They could have done the same thing. They could have repented. Why would God say don't do these things? Because they were doing them. He allowed them time to repent. He allowed them space to repent. He gave them a witness. And yet they, like in the days of Noah, scoffed at it and walked away. And then as they did not repent, there came a time when God said, enough. Can I just tell you my heart? I believe with all of my heart that we serve a God of love. In fact, the Bible says He is love. But I believe there's coming a day when God will say in this world, in our current context, enough. It's coming. Judgment will come. And I say that so that it won't just ring out through an auditorium, but it will ring true in your ears and your heart. And you'll repent and I will repent. And we will turn to this holy God and we will be spared the wrath that is to come. That's being stored up for those who have not trusted in Him. Four truths that are generated this morning, and this takes us to our conclusion. Number one, God is greater than us. God is greater than us. 
Because he is the creator, he has the right to set the rules. We can't compare God's activity with human activity. God acts toward other humans in ways that we can't comprehend acting toward other humans. We don't have that right. He's greater than we are. Would you agree with that? God creates something from nothing. God speaks a word and the light hits the sky. God speaks the word and the expanse of the universe comes into existence. God speaks the word and all of life just begins to teem upon the earth. God bends near to the ground and by his breath he breathes life into the nostrils of Adam. The powerful creator God is greater than we are. We can't do that. Secondly, I want you to see this. God's glory is greater than anything. God's glory is greater than anything. The the representation of His character, the, the eminence of His power and majesty is greater than anything. And this is a divine display of His character in, in mass. Yes, 12,000 people lost their lives brutally. Yes, God commanded it to, do, to happen. Yes, the city of Jericho had fallen by the sword. But God, who is sovereign over all, greater than us, for His glory has always operated and worked. Everything God does is for His own glory. It may be toward our benefit, but it is ultimately for His glory. Number three, God has the ability and the right to judge. God has the ability and the right to judge. And this moves quickly into number four. We have neither the ability nor the right to ever judge God. We have neither the ability or the right to judge God. See, God doesn't misspell words. I do. Some of y'all noticed that. Some of y'all are stuck on the word neither. Neither. Thought I'd point that out. I have clay feet and clumsy fingers. We don't have the right to judge God. We don't have the ability to judge God. We can't stand and say, God, I don't like that. You shouldn't do that. We have no place to do that. Now, we want to, don't we? We want to. We want to say, how could God do that? God, if you're a loving God, how could you ever allow somebody to go to hell? God, if you're a loving God, how could you tell Joshua to kill all those people? God, how in the world? There's a clue in this text that gives us some understanding about how God could do this. One person was kept alive. We read about him. Who was he? Help me out. The king of Ai. He was kept alive for a time. There's a motif throughout Scripture of the kings. Often the kings represented the country. It would mention the war of these three kings against the war of uh, uh, these four kings. Or, or the king of Sihon and Og instead of the nations that they represented. The king represented all the people. In fact, in Revelation 6, it's the kings of all the people who run to the hills crying out for rocks to fall on their head. For judgment to come. It's about the kings. So think with me for just a moment. Don't tune out yet. They preserved the king alive for a special time of judgment. We we read about it. They pull him out. They kill all the others immediately. You see, Joshua had been there with Moses in Deuteronomy where Moses said these words under the inspiration of uh, of the Spirit of God. Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. That is... Perhaps the ultimate humiliation and exposure 
that you would be killed in such a way that you are suspended between heaven and earth, hanging on a tree to die. In fact, God told Moses, don't leave the body there overnight. Take it down. It is a cursed thing. And Joshua was there when Moses wrote those words. So Joshua keeps the king of Ai, and they keep him for special judgment. He knew that if you wanted to curse somebody, you hung them on a tree to kill them. God commanded them not to let him hang there because it's such a sign of disgrace. All of the horrible sacrifices of children, all of the sexual misbehavior of the Amorites, all of the sin and wickedness of the people that had multiplied for centuries as it was filling up. God said their cup is not yet full. All of that is represented in this king. And Joshua is saying under the righteous hand of God, this exposure, this judgment shows the damnation of their sin and it shows the holiness of our God. Let the weight of this sink in for a moment. Joshua puts him to death and leaves him there hanging in disgrace. And then he brings him outside the city walls to do so. Now, church family, if you stand in judgment of God for that, then you're going to have a real problem with something else that happened 1,300 years later. You see, there was another king. There was another king. His name is Jesus. And he was representing all of the sin of all of his people. But there was a difference in the king of kings, Jesus, and the king of Ai, these wicked people. Oh, the people were wicked in both kingdoms. But this king was perfect. And he was carried outside the city walls. And he was nailed to a tree and he hung there suspended between heaven and earth. And cried out things like, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. He was bruised and beaten for our iniquities. He willingly gave his life for our sin. You see, he represented all the ugliness of all the sin of all the people of all the world. He was guilty of None of those atrocities. And yet he took the punishment for all of them. His people deserve the exact same death as the people at Ai. They were wicked. Their cup was full of iniquity. As he was taken outside the city walls and hung on a tree, an ultimate disgrace, hung there on a cross, God's judgment is poured out on him and he bore God's wrath. And the curse that Joshua inflicted on the king of Ai is afflicted upon Jesus, this perfect king. He takes our guilt. He takes our punishment. His judgment is poured out on him on our behalf. Let me give you a simple statement. We'll put it on the screen. Church family, listen to me. I find it much, much more difficult to understand how God would allow the people of King Jesus to live then he would allow the people of King of Ai to die. We have lost sight of grace when we lose sight of what we deserve. When I recognize that my sin put him on the ultimate exposure, my sin 
put Jesus on the cross. Your sin put Jesus on the cross. And for the glory of God, he sent out his judgment and wrath and poured it upon he who knew no sin so that you and I who knew no righteousness could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That ought to make all of us want to shout. 20 minutes ago, you walked into this place of sermon and said, he's preaching about genocide. No, I'm preaching the gospel. God gave a people 400 years to repent and turn from their wickedness and said, turn, 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 you'll be saved. And Rahab said, yes, Lord. And she was gloriously saved. And today, some of you have sat through sermon after sermon and your cup is filling up and you need to say today, yes, Jesus, yes, Lord, I want you. I don't want that wrath. That wrath that was poured out on him on your behalf can be applied to your life today. The gospel from Joshua chapter 8. God judges sin. Oh, hallelujah. He forgives sin too because he judged it on the cross. Oh, what a Savior. I entitled this sermon, No Room to Judge God. Because you can't shake your fist toward heaven in right standing and say, God, that's not fair. God doesn't operate in fair. He operates in justice in mercy, and in grace. I'm so thankful for this account. Troubling as it is, embarrassing as it might be in a sophisticated society, but the greater question is this, for someone who would dare look down their nose at your God and say, how could a loving God do that? Our answer could and should and simply is, should be and simply is, How could a righteous God put up with me? And the answer, it's only because of sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for this word. Lord, I pray that if there's one here today that needs to repent, that needs to come to you and be spared of the wrath that is stored up for those outside of Christ, oh God, would you speak to them today and draw them, let them be saved. Father, we thank you for this time. If there's someone here today, Lord, that needs to unite with our church family, I pray that that would be so. We love you, we thank you, and we ask that you would have your way during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand to our feet, and we're going to sing a hymn of...